This morning we'll be in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And as we, before we get to our text today, I, I got a chance to get out and play golf for the first time on Friday afternoon. It was a little chilly, but not too bad. And while the course was open, it wasn't what you'd call in playing condition. Uh, the tee boxes were all moved to one tee. The greens were shaggy, had been aerated, overseeded, sanded. With the conditions the way they were, and the fact that it was the first time for all of us who were playing together, we allowed ourselves a few mulligans. A mulligan is a do-over, a chance for a redo, a, a, to hit a shot again without penalty. It's kind of like the year of Jubilee in golf, right? You have this uh, opportunity to, to redo, to set things right. The year of Jubilee was built on the principle of the Sabbath year. The Sabbath year was a practice every seventh year that was clearly to benefit the soil but it was also a recognition that everything belongs to God and that he bestows it freely on his people. It was an opportunity for the soil to rest, which is a good farming practice, but it was also a reminder from God that everything ultimately belongs to him and that he blesses us with it. And in a largely agrarian society, God's command for a Sabbath year required great trust, great faith that God would provide. And the year of Jubilee was like that Sabbath year, but kind of on steroids. It was like the year of Jub uh, the uh, Sabbath year was brought to bear on every aspect of society and life. It was not just the soil, but all of life. Debts canceled, prisoners set free, land returned to the family who owned it. Any way that people could be taken advantage of was reversed. And I share this background this morning because in our text, Jesus is referencing this Old Testament practice. This Old Testament practice, as far as we can tell, was actually never practiced by Israel. But now Jesus comes to declare the year of the Lord's favor, his jubilee. So let's read chapter 4, beginning at verse 14 through the end of the chapter, through uh, verse 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is, this not, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, 
Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Nahum, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill of which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who has come with the mission of preaching good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to bring sight to the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed. Lord, we pray that as those who are spiritually blind, that you would, who were spiritually blind, that you'd give us eyes to see, that those who are deaf, that you'd give us ears to hear, that we might not only hear your word, but that we would know it and live it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we were in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And we found Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And Jesus didn't just find himself there. He went into the wilderness to face temptation. And we said that we too face temptation nearly every day. And that because Jesus was tempted yet without sin, we have help in our temptation. We said we have Trinitarian help. We see in, this, in the passage that the, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are there in our time of temptation. They are there. They are our help in time of temptation we, see in our, we saw in our text that Jesus is our exemplar, our example to help us in temptation, to show us how, when we are tempted, we are to respond. And then we finally saw that he is our gracious help, the one who not only is our example, the one who withstood temptation. And because he withstood temptation, our Heavenly Father sees us as he sees his Son, tempted yet without sin. Today we read that Jesus returns to Galilee, full of the power of the Spirit. In his temptations, the Spirit strengthens him and he is ready to begin his public ministry full of power. And the early returns on the ministry are good. You know, the polling that was done was, was good. It said that he was glorified by all, that as he went throughout Galilee, people responded well to his teaching and preaching. And no doubtably, as he refers to, to his healing ministry as well, that there was a great response to Jesus' early ministry. 
He was glorified by all, Luke tells us in the text, until he gets to his hometown of Nazareth. And while the initial response was good in Nazareth, there's a cynicism that seems to take hold, which leads to his rejection. Now, you may wonder why on Palm Sunday, an event that takes place near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, we are in a text that happens at the beginning of his earthly ministry. Well, one, it's the next text in our Luke series, so that's part of it. But as you might well know, on Palm Sunday, we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and then just five days later, he is crucified. And we often wonder, how does Jesus go from being glorified by all to being rejected and crucified just five days later? Now, there are several different theories on how this takes place and, and what goes on in the city of Jerusalem. And, but the most probable of these is that there were two different crowds, one crowd that welcomed Jesus, glorifying him and praising him and singing Hosanna, and another crowd that said, crucify him, crucify him, which in the city the size of Jerusalem with all the people there for the Feast of the Passover is a legitimate theory. But as we see in our text today, it doesn't take long to go from glorifying to rejecting Jesus and seeking to kill him. In fact, it happens in our text before the Lord's Day service is even over, right? I'm going to pray that today, before the service is over, you're not trying to kill me, but in our text, that's exactly what happens. Jesus gets up and reads the text from the scroll. He sits down, which was the position of the teacher in the synagogue, and he begins to expound the text. And by the time he's finished expounding the text and revealing the hearts of those in the room that day, they go from glorifying him to wanting to kill him in the matter of minutes. Just like those on that first Palm Sunday, like those in our text in Nazareth, we too can be prone to glorify Jesus one minute and reject him the next. But we see in our text that Jesus comes to glorify the rejected by being rejected for us. Jesus comes to glorify the rejected by being rejected for us. And we'll see that he, how he glorifies the rejected and how he's rejected for us. First, how he glorifies the rejected in verses 14 through 21. We see in our text that Jesus comes, as I said, and he picks up this scroll that is handed to him to read. And as he begins to read, he reads this text from Isaiah chapter 61, which we read this morning in our Old Testament reading. He reads part of it, part of what we read this morning, and he begins to explain, as he said, that this is revealed in him. And so he, he begins to 
to, for us to understand what's happening here, we might help us to just kind of do a quick look at what Jesus is saying from the prophet Isaiah. So the word here that we see translated as to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set at liberty those who oppress is often translated as forgiveness. And in the three other occurrences in Luke, it is specifically means the forgiveness of sins. But this here is the more general term of liberty or release, meaning liberation from bondage of sin, sickness, and Satan. Jesus has come to liberate those who are in sin, but those who are also in captivity to the sinfulness of our world. Not just personal sin, but the sin that we all deal with in the brokenness of our world. He has come to release, to set at liberty those who are in bondage to personal sin, but also the sin that infiltrates our culture, our society, our institutions. He has brought liberation from the bondage of sin, sickness, and Satan. And at times we'll see as we go through Luke that this will involve physical setting free, right? Physical healing, exorcisms, rebuking the destructive forces of nature when he tells the wind and the waves to be still and quiet. In addition to pronouncing the forgiveness of sins, releasing people from their sins. He goes on from Isaiah to talk about the oppressed. Basically, it's just really, literally broken in pieces or shattered or crushed. Jesus come to those squashed by life's circumstances. For those who can see no way out, who find themselves living in oppression, he gives freedom. Malcolm Muggeridge wrote, after coming to Christ in later years, he wrote these words. He said, all other freedoms once won soon turn into new servitude. Christ is the only liberator whose liberation lasts forever. He's reminding us that even the things that we find as freedoms ultimately are things that hold us in captivity that oppress us. And Jesus is our only true liberator, the liberation that lasts forever. Throughout this gospel, Luke will note how Jesus accomplishes this mission according to this Old Testament prophecy of releasing all of creation from its bondage to sin. Charles Wesley, meditating on this passage, says it well in Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. Jesus comes to set us free. He comes to glorify the rejected, those who are poor, 
both physically and spiritually, those who are captives, both spiritually and physically, those who are blind, both physically and spiritually, those who have been oppressed, both physically and spiritually. Jesus comes to set us free. Jesus comes to glorify those who have been rejected like you and me. And Jesus, having gone throughout Galilee, appeared in Nazareth to proclaim what he's already proclaimed throughout Galilee, what he's already proclaimed, this glorifying the rejected, the setting free those who have been in bondage. This good news to the spiritually poor. And he gets to Nazareth to proclaim this same era of God's salvation that is breaking in with him. But what we find out is that the people, while they like what Jesus has to say, they want him to put his money where his mouth is, so to speak. They want to see wondrous deeds, right? That's why Jesus quotes that parable physician heal yourself. They, they want to see. They want to experience what they've heard has happened around Galilee. That not only has Jesus come and preached, but he's also healed. He's also begun his ministry of miraculous healing, of miraculously setting people free, of miraculously doing what he says he has come to do. But he did none of those things in order to teach about something else about who he is and what he's come to do, rejection. Right, just as Jesus was rejected in Jerusalem that we will remember this week, just as he was glorified as he came into Jerusalem and then was rejected five days later, Jesus shows us that he must be rejected for us. I mean, we read here that when he first gets to Nazareth and he reads this and he sits down and he begins to expound the text and explain what's going on, the first reaction we hear, and all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They were captivated by the grace and charm of his words. But something happens in that process. Something happens, and it's not really exactly sure. Um, The commentators have differing opinions on this, but it has to do with this question. Is not this Joseph's son? There's a, it turns from him being well spoken of to be, marvel, to be marveled at his gracious words, to something happening in this question that is asked. And Jesus' words kind of reveal what that possibly could be. Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. As much as they 
enjoyed what he had to say, as much as they marveled at his words. As I just mentioned earlier, Jesus reveals that they wanted some miracles. They wanted to see. And this question is likely basically saying, wait a minute, he hasn't done any miracles here because he can't. Remember, he's just Joseph's son. The fact is, they already had enough evidence to believe in him. Right? If they knew what he had been doing around Galilee, if they had heard the good reports, which undoubtedly they did, Galilee was not that big of a place, the region. They had the evidence. They had the objective evidence of the miracles around Galilee and Capernaum. All of Galilee was only 35 by 45 miles, so word would have traveled pretty fast. Everybody was talking about what had happened. But Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter, which is a spiritual self-sufficiency and pride. And to make his point, he cites two famous Old Testament examples, Elijah and the widow and Naaman. And when he recounts these stories, the people quickly realize exactly what he's saying. You remember the, the widow that he refers to that Elijah went to she was a Gentile. There was a famine, right? And she only had a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil, and she was going to make some bread f to feed her and her son so that then they could die. That was her plan, right? We're going to have one last meal and then we're going to die because there's nothing else to eat. And Elijah comes along and he says, make me some bread first, and then you will have enough flour and enough oil to make enough bread to feed you and your son until the crops come back after it rains again. And miraculously, she had faith <laughs> to do that. To prepare for Elijah, Elijah first and that she and her son had more than enough for the rest of the famine. And then he re talks about Naaman, the, the uh, commander of Syria, the army commander from Syria who comes to be healed of his leprosy. And he was so angry that Elisha told him to bathe in the Jordan River that he begins to leave and his servants are like, dude, we just traveled all the way from Syria to come here to have this guy heal you. Why won't you do this thing that he's asked you to do? If he asked you to do something much greater, you would have done it. He said, well, I thought he was just going to come out and say some magic words and wave a hand, his hand over the spot and then it would disappear. But Naaman listens to his servants. He trusts the word of the prophet, just the word of God, and he is healed. 
And so Jesus uses these examples and the people of Nazareth have heard enough. It was bad enough to be told that they were poor and blind and captive and oppressed. But now they are told they are less spiritual and less wise than the Gentiles. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And no longer are they confused, but they're filled with anger. Anger that he will not be the Messiah they want. And the people of Nazareth fulfill his prophecy. They do reject him. But what's what the irony here is he actually does a miracle in their midst to escape their attempt to kill him. He takes control, passing through their midst, and he journeyed on their way. Jesus is rejected by his own people. He's rejected. Think of this. By those who knew him the best. Right, for 30 years or thereabouts, he lived in Nazareth. Nazareth wasn't a big town. He lived there. They, they got to see him grow up, right? And the gospel writers tell us that he grew in wisdom and understanding that he was without sin. These people saw him grow up. He wasn't just a good boy down the street. He was like a boy they had never seen before, never experienced before. He wasn't just the carpenter down the street. He was the carpenter who made the best tables that anyone had ever seen in their lives. He was the son who, when Joseph died, took care of his family. They knew him. They knew him better than anyone And if anyone should be able to believe that he was who he said he was, or those who knew him the best. And yet those who knew him the best somehow wanted to kill him. And there's a warning for us in all that. There's a warning for those of us who know him the best, who have heard the stories, who have been in the church, who believe that we understand and know who Jesus is. The warning is that we don't know how maybe spiritually poor, spiritually captive, spiritually blind, spiritually oppressed, 
We really are. Sometimes those who are most morally upright, religious, family-focused, etc., are like the people of Nazareth that become furious at the thought that they need God's grace. They say no need to bow to Jesus, the true king. Heritage, traditions, morality, political affiliation, theological precision bind them, blind them to their poverty, their captivity, and oppression. Just like those in Nazareth, they cast Jesus out. Those most in need of mercy and grace often know it the least. But it's not just those who reject Jesus outright that must be careful to not effectively cast him out. Those of us who have received his grace, who have sought to follow him as king, we too can easily become disgruntled with our king. N.T. Wright states it this way. He says, are we ready to put our property at his disposal to obey his orders when they puzzle us? Are we ready to go out of our way to honor him, finding in our own lives the equivalence of cloaks to spread on the road before him and branches to wave to make his coming into a real festival? Or have we so domesticated and trivialized our Christian commitment, our devotion to Jesus himself, that we look on him simply as someone to help us through the various things we already want to do anyway? Someone to provide us with comfortable experiences. In our world where most countries don't have kings and queens, have we forgotten what receiving a true king might be like? I think this is especially true for us in a country like the United States, in a country and culture that often places individual autonomy, individual freedoms, individual expression, individual whatever as the highest good that we could ever achieve. Are we able to hear the call of our king to proclaim the good news to the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed by bowing to the will of our king? Or do we tend to bow to our own will or to the will of others? One other warning for us as Christians that comes from Jesus' rejection and from this text. You might have noticed that Jesus leaves off the second part of Isaiah 61, verse 2, where he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What follows that in the Isaiah text is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why did Jesus leave that off? Because he wasn't trying to, he didn't want to, you know, scare anybody? No. Jesus talks about his judgment and vengeance other places. He leaves it off because Jesus brings the year of God's favor, the jubilee. In his first coming, he brings jubilee. It's not until his second coming that he will bring the day of vengeance. And I say this as a warning for us to remember that our mission as the church, as the body of Christ, is the jubilee mission. Right? That is the mission of the church. That is the mission that Jesus gives us. It is his jubilee mission. To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blinds, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is our mission as the church. And sometimes we forget that we're not the ones who bring the day of vengeance. 
That is the job of our king, Jesus. Our job is to carry on Jesus' mission because we are still in the year of Jubilee until he comes again. We are to be Jubilee people, not vengeance people. And we sometimes get that mixed up and proclaim the day of vengeance, pointing out how the blind, poor, captive, and oppressed will be judged without proclaiming the good news of God's favor, of his grace, and his mercy. Sometimes the church forgets which mission we're on. Jesus has both missions. We have one. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to all those who are oppressed, captive, poor, and blind. That is our mission. That is who our king calls us to be. Calls us to do. And what we must understand in this mission is that whether we are needy physically or those who have no need, we are all spiritually needy. We all are those who have rejected God. There's no one who hasn't. We all have rejected God and Jesus comes to those who reject him. He comes to offer new life, a new place, a new kingdom, a new home, a new family. He offers the year of Jubilee to all who trust and believe, who will come to their true and rightful king. May we, as God's people, be reminded of our true and rightful king, and the mission that he has given us. And if you are not counted among his people this day, and you know that, he comes to you as well. He comes to those who have rejected him, even those who wanted to throw him off a cliff. He dies for each and every one of us to put our faith and trust in him. Jesus comes to glorify the rejected by being rejected for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your son, our Savior Jesus, does indeed glorify the rejected by being rejected for us. Lord, we have all been rejected in one way or another by the power of sin in our lives. Lord, we have all at one time rejected you. And yet, Lord, our rejection of you, the rejection that we all experience because of sin has not caused you to reject us. 
Lord, we pray, I pray that you would help us more and more live in light of ones who have not been rejected, to more and more live the mission of jubilee that you have given us. As your son Jesus came to proclaim and has given us as the church to proclaim in his, as his body, as his people, until he comes again. Lord, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to live this, in light of this truth, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Jesus' name.